cougars. Like oh, I went on a hike the other day and I, I swear I could have, I heard a cougar like in the trees and I was freaking out. I'm, I'm terrified of your Canadian animals. So I don't know. So here's the thing. At least if, if there's a bear or something, you can kind of see it and back up, right? What, what, the, what do you mean? <laughs> do you do? If I saw a bear, it look big. Okay, wait, don't take this. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, I know you've been working out. Supposed to. I know you've been. I know you've been working out, but you don't have to flex here. <laughs> Michael's gonna wrestle a bear on the podcast next time. You're gonna wrestle it. This guy's gonna turn to Khabib. Right, right. <laughs> I, like, I like how we, I like how he said look big and just did this. Okay, that was good. <laughs> Are we gonna get this one up on YouTube soon? Too? <laughs> going on everybody this is the pt3 i'm here with Wally crab and our guest gian suarez how are you all doing today i'm so good, good. i'm doing amazing excited <laughs> why are you so excited Wally? because we got gian in the house we got gian got gian in the house yeah right. stoked to be here guys awesome. this is the shuffle pass gian you got this you got this <laughs> So yeah, we got Gian Suarez on. Um, so this episode is going to be focused on chronic pain. Um, and Gian has an extensive background in some chronic pain and he has a lot of experience there. So um, I think it'd be best for Gian if you can give the audience um, some background about who you are, why you're here, and some of the things that we'll talk about today. Great. Um, hey guys, I'm Gian Suarez. I currently work in, in Whistler, BC as a sports physio uh, in a clinic here. And I'm also the senior physio for Canada Snowboard, their national team for half-pipe snowboard, uh, half snowboarding, big air and uh, slope style. Um, I guess my background is, uh, I started being a physio in 2012. And then I worked in a, a variety of different fields. So I worked in hospital and then I went to private practice. And then I came over here and started working in more of a sporting role. So I work predominantly in sports now, um, but I did quite. I did have a pretty extensive um, stint in working in the chronic pain industry with uh, non-sporting chronic pain. So, yeah. Okay. Thanks for thanks for that background there. Very extensive. So it seems like you worked in a lot of different areas. So you bring a lot of different perspectives and views to um, some of the stories that you'll share with us today, along with some of the questions. Um, so I'm just curious, so what interested you about the chronic pain field and why did you go into it to begin with? Yeah, it, it's, I guess it's kind of a weird story. It might, might be different to a lot of people that work in the chronic pain industry, but I started off uh, wanting to be a physio and, and really not wanting to work in the sporting industry. So I wanted to work in anything but, which is uh, which is pretty interesting now that I'm a sports physio. Uh, but I guess my story with pain and uh, chronic pain, but also lower back pain, started from going to Catholic church, which I, I don't know if you guys have ever been to Catholic church before. Has anybody been to a Catholic church before? I, yeah, I've been to Catholic church. Um, go, yeah. I go to a mosque. You go to a mosque, yeah, yeah. So, so different, <laughs> uh, yeah, different, different struggles with posture there. But um, for me, going to Catholic church as a kid, um, if you've been to a Catholic church, you, you generally sit in like these big wooden pews, right? And uh, as a kid, I was pretty fidgety and just uncomfortable. So I used to move around, not really listen much, get distracted really easily, and. You know, my mom being a good Catholic mother, you you get told to sit up straight and, and not move and pay attention to the priest. And that was something I had a lot of trouble with, I guess, because for me, sitting up straight and holding that posture was really, really uncomfortable. And that's really the only time I had back pain was when I sat up straight and, you know, tried to listen to the priest. So it it just clicked really early in my life that that posture wasn't for me. And I didn't really understand why you had to sit up straight and stand straight and walk straight, always be straight with your spine. So when I got into university and started learning about pain and, and low back pain and, and posture, there were things that started clicking to me that made sense uh, about the posture we, we assume and what we understand to be a, a good posture. 
and why some of those things may be myths and, and that we're, we're sort of following the wrong strategy on, on posture. And, and there's definitely some research that has come out over the last few years that sort of questions this upright posture. And that's something I really got into just from my own backstory. And uh, when you treat patients and you get a better understanding of why they're feeling pain when you've been in pain, trying to follow these posture guidelines. So I think for me, that's what got me into the posture side of things, the pain side of things. Um, and I just really like the science behind it. So reading into a lot of the research that's been coming out about low back pain and, and postures and the way people move has been a real interest for me over my career. Mm -hmm. And it's such a huge part of like, like, I mean, we're very young and we're not, we, we, I mean, we started our careers, but like, we're very like, we're just students right now and they kind of drill it into us that one of the things that we need to observe on a constant basis is someone's posture, just observing yeah. them and how they're kind of sitting. So my question to you, and I think you might've answered it, but I just want to understand it a little better was what is the relationship that you found between posture and chronic back pain? Yeah. So I, I guess it's a little bit controversial to talk about because there's such a um, wide range of uh, opinions in, in the industry and in, in the rehab mm -hmm. industry, in the fitness industry. Um, yeah. If I can outline it for you really simply, posture is important, but there's not one posture that's better than other postures. And that's what the research mm -hmm. is starting to show is that, yeah, assuming postures for different tasks, are important and some postures may be efficient for some activities, but having this ideal perfect posture is actually a bit of a myth. And mm -hmm. I think promoting this, this good ideal posture for like globally uh, to patients is really not an effective way to treat people with back pain or e even people without back pain, right. telling them that this ideal posture exists and promoting this and getting people to live by this rule Mm -hmm. is maybe one of the reasons why chronic lower back pain is one of the biggest causes of disability in the world. It's actually the leading cause of disability in the world. So back pain's uh, on the up, which mm -hmm. is scary considering that we know so much more about back pain. Right. And by this ideal posture referring to like people just like sitting, sitting upright like this and making sure that, you know, um, cause, cause the thing is, it's, it's like so weird because we try to correct that. Like even when we're like going to placements and, and things of that nature, we find that people are sitting kind of around our shoulders or whatever. We're, we're just sitting there trying to make sure that we correct them. But in our head, we're almost using the template of this ideal posture um, as a means to kind of correct some of the symptoms and signs that we see in these patients. So yeah, maybe, maybe what you're trying to alliterate is, or like describe to us is the fact that like, we should look for the ideals in between patients. Is that, is that what you're trying to say? Like the, you have to understand the variations in between. Absolutely. So like, if you look at the research, there's so much spinal variation that's considered normal, right? So if we look mm -hmm. at scoliosis, that's considered a, a disorder of the spine. Mm -hmm. um, but we all, we all have some variation to the curve of the spine, right? So mm -hmm. on the higher end of the spectrum, we may have large spinal variation, uh, which can be a scoliosis. And, that may need surgical involvement and that can lead to um, a, a, a bunch of pain, right? But when we look at the, what we consider a normal population, we still have some spinal variation in, in curves. So we have uh, differences, differences in lordosis of the lumbar spine. We have differences in kyphosis of the thoracic spine. So we don't have an ideal number to go, your spine is, is ideal, it's perfect, right? We have a, a variation of normal where a lot of people do sit so everybody's spine is a little bit different and everybody's spine responds to posture different differently and for some people being straight back and erect is is perfect for them that that's their ideal their comfortable posture and for those people that may be their perfect posture for me for example i don't do well with being in that upright posture i i prefer a lumbar slight lumbar curve a more relaxed rounded back and that's my ideal sitting posture so there's a there's a variation and the problem is if we box people in and just think about one ideal posture we're missing all these extra variations that people have mm -hmm. in their back 
So what, what's good for one person may not be good for another. It's like, it's interesting because like, I don't know if you watch UFC, but like some of the highest performing athletes, I mean, not anymore, but Conor McGregor, RIP, but okay, he, man, why are you saying RIP, man? The guy, RIP. The guy, the guy hey. literally broke his tibia. It's <laughs> the man's career. But anyways, I love his career. His career, man. God. But anyways, the point is, like, if you look at him and you observe him, like, there's people that have taken snapshots of him just walking around. You know what I mean? Like on a daily basis, at, or like training, and he has like the most rounded shoulders. Like they're internally rotated, like, like you know what I mean? Protracted scapulas, everything, right? But then uh, I follow this page called Flowability, who tries to. It's a page that tries debunking these posture myths and you know, a lot of fighters like him, even Muhammad Ali, they are still able to function so well with that posture. But if, a, if they want to in a physio clinic and they said they have like back pain, someone might go and like try to correct that. But obviously that's helped them so much in their sport or in, in their daily life. You know what I mean? So it's like what you were saying, the variation, there's so much postural variation. There's so much variation to what will benefit someone that is very dangerous to just say, this is the way to do it. This is the correct posture. This is the correct pattern. And those myths about pain are really uh, important for us to raise awareness about. So a question I had for you was what are some common myths about chronic pain that you've seen with patients, like patients coming into your clinic? Um, what are some common myths about chronic pain that patients think are true, but aren't? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I guess the, the first myth is, is that there is an ideal posture. And, and when, when you talk to patients, they will tell you it like I have a bad posture. And my question to them always is, well, what does a bad posture mean? Like, what, what does a bad posture mean to you? And they'll often say that. They'll say, you know, my shoulders round, my back rounds. And that may be a posture that causes pain for them. So that is something we may look at correcting or, or moving out of that position more often, right? Um, I, I think part of the initial posture re rehabilitation is getting people to understand that there's no ideal posture, but there are different positions that you can, you can get into in certain times of the day, which will feel comfortable. So ideally we want to spend most of our time in a comfortable posture, a posture that works for us. Um, and that may be different to other people, but then we may need to assume other postures for different things. So for example, sports are really good one, because if we look at a sport like ballet, that is a, uh, a sport that's built heavily on, uh, on erect posture and, and uh, yeah, they, they do a lot of loading in those upright back positions, right? They do a lot of lifting in that and form is a huge thing for that sport. But then you look at something like MMA and they have to create shapes in their body that may not be ideal, right? They're, they're grappling, they're wrestling, they have to flex their back, they may have to extend their back, you know, and they have to do it really quickly. So the demands of the sport play into posture specifically, right? So when you're looking at a sport, you're looking at posture for sport. But then when you take that away, when the ballerina comes off the, off the dance floor out of performance, their ideal posture may not be that erect posture all the time, right? So that's a really important thing to consider is that posture is variable throughout the day and variable depending on the demands of your body at, at that time. So if you're performing compared to sitting down, reading a book, the performance and the demands on your back are so different, right? So your posture may be different in those situations. It may be the same, but it may be different. Hmm. Yeah. So the follow-up question I would have is like a lot of patients come in and they might not necessarily understand exactly what posture means to them. Like you said, like most patients are aware of some of these things. Like I had like two like ladies um, that are kind of older, like in my placement too, that mentioned that, oh, I can't, like, I feel a lot of mid-back pain. And I feel like it's because I'm sitting all day in the sofa like this. And I'm like, <clears throat> okay. Um, but the question that I had was the fact that like patients come in with these things. What are your thoughts on some of the things that you picked up on as a therapist? And some advice that you would give to therapists in terms of how they kind of conceptualize pain. Because like for us, it's like we have our understanding, but super novel, super like novice uh, in this yeah. field for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess with, with, with that question, I mean, we see lots of people like, like especially um, people from 
older people, I guess, uh, that may have some kind of backwards beliefs about posture, and, and that's just the world they grew up in. So uh, there was a pretty, uh, pretty interesting article I read um, a few months ago that sort of went through the history of posture and how the understanding of posture develops. So you, you can, it sort of, it was kind of a, a pretty far-fetched theory, but it, it was actually really interesting and made a lot of sense to me. So it took it back to, to Darwin's theory of evolution. Have you guys seen the picture of that, right? So obviously ape developing into man, we started to get more and more bipedal, right? We, we started coming off four legs and, and getting more erect through the spine. So we went through uh, an evolutionary phase called Homo erectus and, and the Homo species developed as an upright position, more bipedal, right? Um, and then Homo sapiens is, is known as the, the upright man, right? Where we're, we're, we're erect posture, we're on two feet. And then coming more into the Middle Ages, the, the spine and the posture uh, really was a sign of status, right? So when you when you look back at like high status people back in the medieval ages, you see photos of them. They're all erect in their in their posture. They're standing with good posture. Whereas some of the peasants, w when they're depicted, they're hunched over. They're you know decrepit in in painting. So it, it was kind of an interesting article. And then. There's a lot of research based around emotion and spinal posture. So if you think about somebody that's confident, that's, uh, that's exuding confidence uh, and strength, they, they tend to look more upright. And then when you're depressed, sad, all those things, you tend to assume that, uh, that rounded posture, I guess. So, um, and, and there's, there's research that sort of shows that we change our posture based on emotion. Um, so that is definitely something. Mm. we see in the, in the clinic and it's important to realize even though a lot of people don't think that they change their posture based on that you mentioned something about how like rounded shoulders and being like there was a correlation between that and how it could affect like the mood right so individuals who are kind of rounded they might be in a more sad and depressed state they seem like they might be in a parasympathetic or like when you're running outside, you're like upright. You're not going to be like stocks over and running. This is, I don't see it happening unless there's something congenital that happened that is forming, that is making you run that way. So is it possible that the way that you're sitting up and down um, in terms of like being erect or rounded, um, that it influences your sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system? Like, did you come across anything like that? It, I mean, it may do. I'm not, not too confident to say that it specifically does there mm -hmm. um but yeah it, it, it's more the opposite way so emotion can affect the postures that we assume so oh. if, if we if we do have a stressful day or, or we're feeling sad mm -hmm. what the research has shown us is that we actually assume different postures subconsciously compared to if you're feeling confident strong all those things I don't know the, the research, but I feel like it would go the other way as well. Like that's what I was going to say like before. I'm not going to lie. When I'm like this, I feel good. Like, you know what I mean? Like if I'm ever like nervous about something, I just, I just get up like this and it helps. Yeah. But that's actually a strategy for, um, I used to volunteer at a, like a mental health center. And that was actually one of the strategies that they gave for people who are feeling overwhelmed, stressed with the day. It was literally just fix up your posture and try smiling. And that was one of the things that was used to help regulate their emotional state. So I feel like it could go both ways. They're definitely interlinked posture and emotion. And then, and there could possibly be a nervous uh, system link as well, but it's, it's very interesting yeah. what you were describing before. Yeah. And it, it's great that we, we have those body language mechanisms, right? So if you see another person, you know, standing straight and smiling, it gives us that air of confidence. And that's, uh, that's a societal thing. We've, we've sort of developed as human with this erect posture understanding that we, we do better, exude more confidence, uh, be stronger, be maybe someone of more status, be happy with, uh, with erect postures. And that's what we should do. And I think we made that jump from that to the perfect posture is being upright without having a lot of evidence to back that. So we made this big jump as a society. And then, unfortunately, people in the, the fitness industry and the ergonomics industry, they, 
they reinforce those beliefs, right? So and it, it may be part of a, a money thing. You know, it's a huge industry. It generates a lot of income. But do we have the research to back it? Not so much. And that's, that's where some of the research is going now. Have we gone too far one way to say an erect posture is great and ideal rather than should we explore a bunch of different postures and can that have an influence of pain? Right. So what do you do with your patients, for example? Like if someone's coming in with low back pain, tell us like what you're looking at posture-wise and symptom-wise with like that patient. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I guess for pain, it's, it's a fairly complex thing. And understanding pain is probably the cornerstone of treating your patients, right? So when I did my master's at university, it heavily focused on pain science. And one of the big things for me to take away right at the start was they brought out the definition of like a global understanding of what pain means, right? So I'm just going to read it to you because I'll probably stuff it up. But pain is defined as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. What, what, what do you guys think about that? Like, is that, a, is that a bit different to like your thinking of pain or how, how does that work with your thinking? When it comes to like pain for me, it's like, I never, I, like for some reason I've dissociated tissue damage and pain now. Um, maybe it might be something to do with school and then like drilling it into us in terms of modules and saying like, don't do that. Um, but what I've realized is that like pain is something that's like processed in the, in the mind. Like I saw a patient, I think that had fibromyalgia and anything that she did, including breathing, including me, like working on some part of her that's bothering her, any kind of like touch, she was so sensitive. In that yeah. moment, what, what it made me realize, like, yeah, you read these books and, and whatever, and you understand that pain is complex. That was one of those things where it's like, I couldn't sit there and reason and explain anything to my CI. And I was like, yeah. I, I don't understand. Like, I don't know. What's yeah. like, and you can't say like this person's making it up because there's no way that's happening. They're, she's experiencing like real pain, right? Yeah. Like it's excruciating. So it's like, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Like I, I like that statement, but like when it says something about how there's like tissue damage or maybe the potential to tissue damage, it's like, yeah, but sometimes it gets so complex, especially when it gets chronic where it's like, I, it's hard to explain. Yeah. Cause sometimes like the pain, like your body gets used to maybe like your tissue was damaged at some point. Right. But eventually your body just associates a certain movement or a certain like body part with the pain that it feels. And even if let's say it's recovered, it may still feel that pain. Like I had a similar experience. Like I used to have a lot of like bilateral knee pain. Um, and so eventually like whatever I rehabbed it, I uh, went through physio and it, it did not feel damaged as much. I was able to do a lot more, perform a lot better, but occasionally my mind would expect that like valgus would hurt. Cause that's just what I like my mind associated with, or maybe because I've been taught that in school, maybe valgus is a, quote unquote, not optimal position. Now I think that's going to hurt. So it's almost like a nocebo effect. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's yeah. just very, it's very common. And like, it happens to people subconsciously, even if they're, they're not aware of these, these mechanisms. Like it, it, we see it all the time. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think with, with patients, especially, so you guys have uh, like a good understanding to, to, to know that the pain you experience and the tissue damage you have may not link up they may not link up at all and in most cases they don't really so we can have two patients having the same injury and responding completely different in terms of their pain right so pain's a very subjective experience and i think a big one in that definition is it's a sensory experience but it's also an emotional experience it's highly driven by other factors that may not be physical right um I, I guess one thing to put it into perspective, it, it's a really, it's actually a TED talk. So it's a TED talk by Laura Mosley, who's a huge pain science uh, sort of advocate in Australia. So he, he did a TED talk and uh, it's 15 minutes. I'd encourage everybody to go watch it. it it's, uh, I think it's called Why, Why Pain Hurts or something like that. Um, but basically he puts it into a really 
casual way of understanding pain. So he, he sort of talks about walking through the bush in Australia. And, uh, you, you know, that can be a dangerous place. We have some pretty dangerous animals over there. So he, he talks about walking through the bush and, uh, and getting a little nick on his, on his ankle. And he sort of tripped up and then he kept walking. And, uh, and then he went and sort of went for a swim in, in a pool and, and woke up in the hospital, right? And turns out he was bitten by an eastern brown snake, which is a, which is a really poisonous snake, right? So he, he got venom poisoning, right? And then he goes back and, and goes back into the bush a few months later and walks through the bush and nicks his foot again. And he has screaming levels of pain in his ankle for a few minutes until his friend looks down and checks his ankle and sees a little cut on, on his ankle from a, from a twig, right? So if you look at the stimulus from both of those experiences, both are pretty similar stimulus, right? But then we look at the response level. And initially when he got bitten by the snake, he didn't feel too much. So what, what, he, what he goes into is his brain, the, the message relays from his nerves to his brain, the processing center. And they go through all the previous experiences of, you know, walking in the bush and, and, you know, feeling that sensation. And what his brain says is, well, you walked through the bush before, you probably hit a twig. It's not dangerous. Let's keep walking. So that pain experience was really different. The second time he walks through, he gets that same stimulus, but then his brain activates and goes, wait, wait, wait. Last time you walked through the bush, you got bitten by a snake and nearly died. And his body upregulated that pain to be a larger experience, right? So what pain tends to be for us is a level of threat to the body. So if the body perceives that it's got a big or potentially big threat to the system, then you're going to feel more pain, right? But if we don't have that experience, uh, that experience to shape that stimulus, then it may not be a painful experience for us. The second experience was, less provocative, less, less threatening to the system, but because of his previous experiences, he felt a whole bunch of pain, right? So it, it gives us ideas of, yes, there may be tissue damage involved in the pain experience, but there's so much else going on in the brain in terms of emotion, previous experience, mm -hmm. what we think about pain that can influence the actual pain that we feel, right? So that, that was a really interesting, uh, like I guess TED talk that I listened to and it sort of changed the way I reference pain to my patient, right? Because we know that pain isn't a sign of tissue damage, but often they don't. They're focused heavily on what have I done? What have I injured? What have I broken? What have I strained? All of those things tend to come out pretty early when you're doing your subjective interview with a, with a patient. It's that association they make between the stimulus and the pain response, right? And it's, it sounds yeah. like, like patients will kind of catastrophize that a lot. So when they have something that's a similar stimulus, and then it'll cause that increased pain response or that catastrophized yeah. experience. Like, how do you, how do you explain this to, like, I know you explained it really well to us and everyone listening, but how do you explain that to a patient so that it's easy for them to understand? Yeah. So Assessment's a big part of educating as well. So looking at people's movement and assessing them is essential to provide evidence to say, yes, there is structural damage or more often than not, no, there's not structural damage, but the pain you're feeling is real, right? Then you can go on to explain the other mechanisms of pain and why that may be making this whole pain experience a bit more than actual tissue damage, right? Um, I find it pretty useful to try and uh, pretty useless, sorry, to educate people off the bat, because if you can show them evidence from their actual assessment, then it starts to click in their own head. So I usually wait to educate people until the very end, until we have the whole picture. And for me, my subjective is really important. So a lot of people will come in with back pain potentially from a really innocuous task. So say bending over to pick up a, a fork or, or pulling something out of the car and getting 10 out of 10 back pain. That's a pretty common story. And there is a reason why they're having back pain. Their pain's not made up. It's not in their head. But 
differentiating the, the actual tissue damage from what else was going on at that time is, is super important. And that's why a, a good subjective is, is really important. So looking at their fatigue levels over the week, over the month, looking at their stress levels, uh, looking at their sleep, looking at their nutrition. And, and, and this takes time. It, it is difficult to do this. And especially as a new grad physio, that can be difficult to ask about, asking about nutrition, asking about sleep. That's a bit of a scary thing to, to ask about. But once you've worked in the field a little bit longer, if they tell you things about that, you can use that as evidence to go, okay, you bent over to pick up a fork and that caused 10 out of 10 back pain, but you've done this a hundred times before. What was different about this time? Mm. And then you look back on their story and they may have been excessively stressed from work that previous week or that month, they may have had a big assignment or a project due at work, right? They but may they were in Australia in a bush. If they're, yeah, if they're stressed out <laughs> in the bush from a snake, right? Uh, so, so, I mean, stress is a big one, but also nutrition, their training load as well. So uh, if people are really deconditioned, they have tend to have a, a really low capacity to lifting. So if they've done a lot of, household lifting or recreational lifting or uh, big cleaning or shoveling at home and then they go to pick up that fork they may have overdone their capacity so they're more likely to have a pain experience but whether mm. that pain experience is tissue damage whether they've injured something or whether they've just had a flare-up or overloaded tissues is is completely different so I, I i like to differentiate it for them that way and that's a good way. You mentioned catastrophizing before. That's what we try to do with our patients in the, in the low back pain realm is to dull that down because that's a big driver of chronic pain is freaking out about your back pain and thinking over and over in your head that I've done something wrong. I'm damaged, not going to get better. All those negative beliefs are actually a driver of back pain. And the research has shown that that's one of the big drivers of chronic pain mm -hmm. is all the, all the mental side of things. So the negative beliefs, the ruminating going over and over in your head, procrastination, uh, catastrophizing, all of those things tend to make the chronic pain experience worse. And if you have those, it's a poor predictor of recovery. Mm -hmm. So that's a scary thing. A lot of the treatment that we do initially with an acute lower back pain or even an acute on chronic, so flare up of back pain, is desensitizing the system whether that be mentally or physically doing a combination of both is, is super important in my practice at least so that's what i aim to do so can you give us an example of how you desensitize them absolutely so so i mean looking at a patient that's come in in that situation so they've they've bent over and they, they picked up a fork right yeah, that's their yeah. pain experience we've assessed them they've got fairly good range potentially but they're painful in a certain range, right? We've done all the neuro tests. We're looking for the red flag side of things. So uh, like fractures, uh, neural compromise, those sort of things that make up a very small proportion of the back pain you see in the clinic, but it, it's still there. It's important to screen for. And once again, it provides good evidence to show if they don't have any of those signs, you can, you can desensitize using that information, right? And then using your assessment and movement to see if they're moving okay or, or whether the pain is limiting them. If it's just pain limiting them and you don't think there is anything sinister going on, any red flags, you've checked their history properly and you can come up with a good pain story, then I use their pain story and use simple movements inside the clinic to, to show that they can get movement back pretty mm -hmm. quick. And Acknowledging their pain is really important as well, right? So just because pain doesn't equal uh, pain doesn't equal tissue damage doesn't mean that pain isn't real. They're feeling real pain. Their system may be sensitized, but if we can bring that down over the next few days, week, that will help their recovery rather right. than focusing on X-rays, imaging, MRIs, or all, all, all that sort of thing. It'll actually run through with the patient. So if something is hurting them when they bend down to pick up, like, for example, a fork, you'll actually go, like, maybe, I guess, regress it a little bit, but you'll eventually work towards picking up a fork with no pain. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So 
there's there's very few times if a if a patient can't flex properly, they can't bend their spine properly. There's very few times in the clinic that I wouldn't get them to do that, right? If the, if they have severe pain and they they're really scared of bending forward, I would still get them to bend their back, but in in a different way, in a regressed way. So it's, it's called graded exposure, and it's something we use okay. in the chronic pain industry to try and get movement back in a way that the patient feels safe and comfortable to do and we feel safe progressing them at home to do as well so say a patient couldn't flex forward and they're finding it really difficult to do that i might get them on their back and getting them bring their knees to their chest and that causes lumbar flexion but without weight bearing right so they may feel more comfortable to do something like that um, than standing where they had their injury they're scared of that position now and they're guarded in that position so that's another thing is trying to eliminate patients guarding and bracing overly their core and their back and not allowing the spine to move in the right way right um and that's like a beautiful transition to like we talk about chronic pain and and patients like kind of guarding and not wanting to move and you're there to provide them with that education it kind of like goes hand in like being able to handle the pain and then understand that we need to move in these ways is really important. Yeah. And that's why I think that's where we kind of come in to provide that role for them. Now, how do you like, tell us about this functional movement that you, that you really yeah. like that your philosophy on it. And <laughs> how do you transition from people who are moving and, and you desensitize them? Yeah. But then how do you, what is your thoughts on functional movement? Yeah, definitely. So I, I guess functional movement is uh, something we aim for in every patient, right? We try and get functionality of the spine back in, in, in every patient, no matter who they are, if they have chronic pain or e even if they don't. So I, I work with uh, people that don't necessarily have chronic pain, but they have on and off back pain given their sporting demands. So it's just as important to work with them as it is with the chronic pain population. But I guess... So, so the most important thing is initially looking at the person in, in the whole view. And we, we sort of talked about that physical factors are important and, and the mechanism of injury is important, but looking at those other things, those, those uh, social and psychological factors that may be influencing. So we talked about stress, we talked about sleep, we talked about nutrition and asking about that to get a good picture about the person. Right. And then Starting with that graded exposure is important because you want the patient to feel comfortable and confident with the movements that they're doing. So starting off small is really essential. And that's something we use as a bit of a building block to build motivation, to set goals, and to go slow and steady with their progression. So they're not pushing too hard too early, but also not avoiding movement, which can be like catastrophic. And that's probably one of the reasons why we see such a big chronic pain community is that a lot of people are told the wrong advice and avoid movements that they should be doing at a lower level early on. Right. So that that's key to getting that movement back and then working on deficits that you find in the assessment, maybe a, a few weeks on once their initial acute pain is resolved, you're looking at their, their long-term deficit. So whether they have any issues with spinal flexibility or whether they have any issues with bracing or what their thought processes are around pain and lifting. Uh, you tend to see patterns in, in the chronic pain population. So uh, a, a lot of people do tend to overly brace their core or, or guard, their, uh, guard their spine when they're doing simple movements, which has just has been shown to not be effective in managing back pain, right? So that's a, that's a big one that I work on is trying to dispel this uh, core bracing belief where people need to stabilize their spine at every, uh, at every second, right? So the spine is one of the strongest parts of your body and bracing your core all the time is really not effective, right? For managing back pain. Core stability is important and using your core effectively is really important when lifting. But what the research has shown in the chronic back pain patients is that they overly brace their core and that reduces lumbar flexibility or, or flexibility with bending. And it reduces their speed of movement. They're more cautious about movement. And 
it doesn't allow spinal flexion, which is a natural movement of the spine. So they've done, there was a really good paper, I, th I think it was 2015 by Rob Laird, who looked at subgroups of patients and some didn't have pain and some did have pain. So they, were, they, they subgrouped them according to the movement pattern. And what they found in one of the subgroups, which had pretty much everybody had chronic pain, is they found those things so that they brace their core more, they move less, and they're more scared of movement, right? So as a physio, I think we have uh, a role to play in increasing confidence and getting safe spinal movement going with these patients earlier on. Uh, those are some great points, honestly. And actually, my question is, where do you find, since you, you look in the research a lot, where do you find some of this research? Like, is there a catalog somewhere? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, I'm lucky that I still have access to my university databases. Um, so I, I tend to use, if you're looking for a database, PubMed's a, a great one. Um, I also look at like Cochrane, right? So Cochrane's systematic reviews is the highest level of evidence. And that's where you sort of want to look when you look at the research, you're looking for studies that are peer reviewed and, uh, hopefully systematic reviews or randomized controlled trials, right? So that's the highest level of evidence. Right. And then... Then you, then you go further down into lower quality evidence. You can rely on it less, but you know, still important forms of evidence in a growing field of research that is disputing what we believe about posture now. So we have to start small and then build up. Um, but there's, there's really great studies online for anybody that's, that's looking for it. And I can, I can send you guys some articles if you, if you want to look yeah, into it a little be, bit more. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah, especially yeah. like as new grads coming out, like having us yeah. research and, and access to some of this research would be key. Um, and actually, yeah. it's a good transition. So there's a lot of people coming out every year, I guess. Um, there's students coming out of school who are going to be new grads, right? So do you have any tips yeah. for um, students just like us coming out of school when they're when we have a patient who is experiencing um, like they have chronic pain? Do you have any tips for like a process for us or ways we should start our assessment? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So I, I think listening is is key for any patient, whether it be a chronic pain patient or you know an acute pain patient, and and taking the time to be able to listen to their pain story. So with a person that's had back pain, you, you definitely want to find out the mechanism. But I try to find out a little bit more about their week in general, right? So maybe the a week, and maybe a few weeks, but what's been going on in their life, and and that's a really important thing that you can get really good evidence uh to work out why this pain is there right um unfortunately with private practice we sometimes we don't have the time to be able to do that so uh i've been lucky in my practice to ask uh patients to book a longer time so we can have an hour or 45 minute session to talk through their story why they're experiencing pain and the history behind pain as well as well as talking to them about their beliefs around pain mm -hmm. which is a huge one um, what I try to do with chronic pain patients, which can be a difficult task, especially the ones that are heavily focused on their pain and, and how it changes, is to try and explain pain as a well-rounded approach. So it's not just a physical experience. It's heavily influenced by our experiences, our beliefs, our, um, our environment at the time. And that can, that can change over time. Over, over the day, over the week, over the month, and that we need to look at our environment as much as ourselves when, when, we, uh, when we talk about pain. So there's some great resources online that help explain pain in a simple way for patients. Uh, so if you, if you look up Explain Pain online, there's a great book online that explains pain in a, in a simple view for patients to understand. There's also great sort of five-minute clips that explain pain as a you know, biopsychosocial uh, influence on pain rather than just being physical, which patients tend to tend to gravitate towards. They tend to tend to think more structurally when they um, think about pain. And then it's always important to link up with pra practitioners, other practitioners, right? So if patients have huge deficits in sleep or nutrition uh, or, or even even psychological influence, right? So things like anxiety, depression, stress, they're managed okay by us, but 
linking in with other professionals in a chronic pain industry is really, really important. So we can't do everything ourselves and we're less suited to treat some of those things compared to other practitioners. So it's good to have a good team around uh, that can sort of help with that. Who would you, who do you find yourself? Like, I mean, I'm sure there's like, like greats in the field that are physios that specialize in pain and chronic pain. But do you find that there are certain like practitioners outside of physios that um, you would refer your patients to in terms of managing chronic pain? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think psychology is a big one, right? Mm-hmm. So there's so many different facets of, of psychological input. So stress management, anxiety management, depression yeah. management, if it's, if it's there as well, can be mm-hmm. important. But also things like coping behaviors is, is really important. So how people cope with pain, are they more passive with their approach? more active with their, uh, with their approach. And we, we can help with some of that, finding yeah. a strategy to help them manage pain. But yeah. uh, having a pain psychologist on board is, is a huge benefit to us uh, when working with these people. It may, it may be difficult to broach the subject of seeing a psychologist, but mm-hmm. for patients that have done the, the sort of sharing of that care, I think right. that's hugely effective. And then, you know, nutritionists can really, really help if a, if a patient's diet's all over the place. So um, we, we know that, you know, altered nutrition can influence uh, our sensitivity of the body, right? Yeah. So uh, that, that's really important to look into as well. For sure. I mean, like, I remember, like, when I was, like, in university and undergrad, I used to, like, play a bit of basketball and, um I remember there's this one year where it was like going really well for me and coming into the preseason, like, like of my second year uh, on the team, like I was like off coming off a really good season. Like our team won the championship or whatever. And I remember in the preseason, I sprained my ankle and it was a bad sprain. It's kind of like the Nick in the bush, if you would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I remember I was like, I've never experienced like, an injury like this like I've always felt like I was invincible like I was like oh yeah like I'll be fine whatever tighten up the laces get back up there and just play like a week later whatever right but this one was different and I remember it was like around like the last week of August I'm coming out and I'm like okay like I should be able to play two weeks go by I'm like okay I should be good swelling's like okay not too bad whatever and then I'm doing some exercises whatever three four weeks go by I'm still not feeling good like I go back on the court and I remember I did like one move and I felt like something kind of gave out on me in my foot and maybe it was just a mental thing maybe, but I remember I started moving differently at that point, like that game that day on its own, like the practice went differently. But after that point, I went home and I was reflecting on that moment when I jumped I'm like, why did that feel so different? And that whole season was just kind of like not down the drain completely, but it was drastically different than my first season. And it was a lot of it. Like it was just in my head. Like I'd be focusing on, oh yeah, I should stay in the gym longer, shoot a few more shots or practice a few more plays or whatever. And nothing was working because it felt like there was something preventing me from moving the way that I want to. So right. I could com- I completely resonate with this idea of moving functionally, but addressing some of these factors that we don't take the time to address yeah. when it comes to patients dealing with something that might be chronic. Mine wasn't that chronic. Mine was pretty acute. It felt like, but it turned into something different than what, what the actual tissue damage was. If I wanted to move my ankle, it was moving fine. Yeah, there might have been some tightness in it compared to the other, but I could still play with it in my head. Um, Absolutely. So it's definitely very interesting. One thing I did want to bring up, it was from our previous conversation. And I remember you mentioned it. And it was so odd for me to think about this. Uh, so can, I wanted can to I just, share. Can I... So sorry, can I, before you go into that, can we just think about your pain story for for, sure. for a yeah. second? So that's super important, right? Like, and, and just brought up so, like me thinking how I'd talk to you if you came into the clinic, right? Perfect. So yeah. Let's do it. You had this ankle injury, and you, you had a big, big strain, right? Mm-hmm. That that's super important because in that instance, you did have some tissue damage. We have to acknowledge that, right? Yes. And most likely, there was a ligament injury potentially there was there was some swelling some bruising and mm-hmm. addressing those tissue factors are super important initially right yes but when we look back on your pain story you just came off a, a really good season right you were doing really well and potentially your expectation of that next season 
was big, right? Like you were you were hoping to have another another big season. So did mm-hmm. you say you were a couple of weeks out of starting the season when you injured yourself? Yes, I was out. I didn't um I didn't play in the opener. I thought I would be able to because it was like four weeks post the end. It was just a, a roll. Like any like yeah. I just jumped when I jumped for a layup on my right side, I remember I fell only on my ankle and someone stepped on it to kind of yeah. put me yeah. into that more of an inversion. Right. And I just immediately fell down and I'm like just holding my foot. I'm like, oh my lord. What the yeah, hell was right. that? I got up, I laced it up, and I finished the practice, but I was hobbling all over the place. So cool. it took me out for at least a month and a half, and then I right. rehabbed it. I got back out there, but it was it felt different. Right, right. So, so you had the expectation that you really wanted to get into a good season, but two weeks before, you had that injury that could have changed the whole season for you, right? So mm-hmm. having that in the back of your mind is something we'd, we find relevant in, in, in the pain, uh, in the pain side of things that may be an influence in, in your pain that mm-hmm. you wanted to get to this point and injured yourself at such a crucial point in the preseason. And that potentially be maybe one of the, one of the factors that could prolong your pain because that experience caused a huge shift in the way your season would go. Right. Yes. So I'm not saying that was an, uh, that was a reason for your pain, you know, extending a longer time period, but it would, it would be something I would consider if I was working with you and assessing you is that that experience was, was, was quite heavy in terms of what you expected out of the season. And it changed quite a bit about you going into that season. Right. Sure. So yeah, it would, it would loom over me. It was like one of those things where it's like every time, like I would explode off my right foot, I wouldn't be that confident. It, it was just yeah. a mental thing too. It wasn't like something that like, if I, if I, in real time, I didn't feel like it, but like when I look at it in like retrospect, it's like, I moved so differently, like before the injury, it yeah. was just a sense of confidence. I don't know what it was. And I, I feel like a lot, like you probably know this better than I, I do. Like a lot of athletes that you even train with, cause you're a senior physio for the snowboarding team. Like you would encounter like instances in which like they probably injured themselves doing something and if they're doing it at a high level getting back to that high level it kind of like the course of it in your mind kind of changes you know because there's no it's not it's not just it's not high level and then if you if the injury takes you out for a little while like you're you're much lower you don't just ramp up in your head you're like i'm still like up here this is where i need to operate and if i don't operate here there's something completely wrong right Absolutely. Yeah. That's, uh, that's diving into the world of athletes and adjusting expectations. So that's, that's a, yeah, that's a difficult one. That's, uh, that's something we deal with pretty, pretty heavily, obviously working with quite, quite a few athletes in different, different sports. And, you know, especially reflecting on some of my snowboard athletes, like getting them onto a plan and managing expectations all the way through is yeah, super important for some of them that, you know, want to be performing at the top level all the time. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Gian, Sorry, what were you gonna say? I interrupted you. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. It's fine. I, we got we got one more question for you. The one yeah. that we said would make you sweat. Yeah. Before this uh, recording started. Um, <laughs> they love this question. <laughs> I have to ask. I have to. Okay, so the question I have for you, or what what we wanted to ask you was, if there was a billboard and you can write anything on this billboard, what would it be? Just, uh, just physio wise, or oh, it could be anything. It could be anything. general. It it could yeah. be anything. Oh, oh, look that's at that just, forehead. That's making me sweat. Look at that I'm forehead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever comes to mind that you would just love, you just want to share with everyone. You wish everyone a message. Yes, yeah. like just exactly your life message. So you guys got me thinking about physio and then asked me this question. So mm-hmm. it's still on the physio side of things, but something that stuck with me uh, ever since university is, is the, the saying motion is lotion, right? So I, I think movement's key for this sort of thing. It's super corny. I know it's, it's super corny. Um, but my philosophy in terms of treating patients is to get them moving as soon as possible. And however little I can get them to move, that's a benefit to them in the long run. So I always try and get people moving as soon as possible and, uh, and as effectively as possible, given what they can do. So 
uh yeah that's kind of a corny one you kind of got me on the uh on the physio <laughs> thinking and i can't get out of it now i'm stuck in oh man it's not corny at all don't no. worry. <laughs> you're good you're good yeah we just we just want to that's what it is we throw you on the spot yeah we throw you on the yeah, spot yeah. what comes to your mind you know what comes <laughs> in the forefront that's a good thing to come to mind you know what i mean like, yeah it, it all comes for like five minutes Exactly. It all comes down to movement for you. And that's, and that's special, right? Like, I think, um, like everything that you talked about today, it resonates like really well with all of us. Like, um, the idea that movement is something that you can do to create changes in your body as a means to heal the mind almost because chronic pain is something that's processed in your brain. Right. So motion is medicine. Like it's lotion. It's, it's a bunch of things. It's lotion. Right. (laughs) It's a bunch of things. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess chronic pain is, is so much more complex uh, than, than what we talked about. And there's so many facets with sure. different people experiencing different things. So mm-hmm. it's a very individualized approach. And I think that's the hardest thing for practitioners and, and us in general is that we tend to categorize people according to disorders, but everybody's individual in the chronic pain industry and things work for people that don't work for, for other people. So having that individualized approach and really getting to know your patient and their triggers is, is probably the most important thing that triggers for their pain. So, um, yeah. Beautiful. Honestly, I feel like I might be a better physio just from this. <laughs> I learned a ton. Oh, it's beautiful. It awesome. yeah. yeah. I hope others get to hear this as well and your message. Yeah. yeah. You got me all teared up and you got all me teared, like yeah. teared up because of like the basketball experience that I had. Oh man. <laughs> PTSD, man. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, you got back into it properly, right? Like, you were able to, back uh, to kill it. it back on the court. Yeah. Hey, well, I got back into it. I'm, you know, I'm scared of now walking through bushes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm never going to Australia. I'm not, you know, like, I don't know what you say about brain perception and all that. Like, I'm not going. <laughs> I'm not going to Australia. And every time I'm on a hike, I'm just going to be like looking at my feet, like, oh my God. That's weird. Like, oh my God. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's di- I'm going to move different now. Like, that's all I'm saying. Like, <laughs> I'm, not, yeah. I'm not going to Rattlesnake Point. That's not <laughs> <either>. <laughs> you know, the, the crazy thing is, is that I'm more scared of your animals here than, um, than really? back in Australia. Like, you guys have things that can kill you, like, instantly, but it's huge, right? Like, bears, wolves, cougars. Like, oh. I went on a hike the other day, and I, I swear I could have, I heard a cougar, like, in the trees, and I was freaking out. I'm, I'm terrified of your Canadian animals, so I don't know. So here's the thing. At least if, if there's a bear or something, you can kind of see it and back up, right? What, what, the, what do you mean? <laughs> you if, I saw, if I saw a bear. It look big. Okay, wait, don't take this. Bullet. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, I know you've been working I out. Supposed to. I, know you've been, I know you've been working out, but you don't have to flex here. <laughs> Michael's going to wrestle a bear on the podcast next time. You're going to wrestle it. It's gonna turn to Khabib, right, bro. Right. <laughs> I, like, I like how he, I like how he said "look big" and just did this. Are we gonna get this one up on YouTube soon? Motion, 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 motion! Oh my goodness, your posture oh. wasn't right though when you did it, Michael. No, <laughs> it's how I was feeling, man. It's it's how I was feeling right there. I wanted that posture. You know, I was scared we wouldn't get a highlight from that one, like a really obvious highlight. But I think we got one. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was perfect. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jan, for coming on. Really appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. Thank you so much. I feel like not even just like as a future physio, but even just um, as we're all going to get at some point, it's possible for us to get injured. You know what I mean? And it's so important for all of us to know what it means and like what our body's trying to tell us, we all need to be aware of that. Right. And sometimes yeah. there's all these myths going around, like we talked about that kind of dilute the, the real um, or like as much truth as we know in the research, they, they get diluted based on these myths. So like, I'm, I'm glad that you're kind of raising awareness about it and our new generation of physios is learning about it and making a change in the field. Like, thanks so much yeah. for coming on and sharing with all of us. Yeah, no worries. I, I guess it's hard when you're when you're learning as well to take everything in and, and read all the research in the in the field. Um, but yeah, I, I think just diving into good quality research and looking at different opinions is really important. Like I, I've read 
quite a bit of posture research and um, the, the argument against posture as well. Um, and and posture is important. And I think that's I, I think that's the the basis is posture is important, but different postures at different times are important as well, right? So just knowing where you can vary postures and being able to change your posture and be variable in in the postures you assume is probably the most important thing. So I'm not saying posture itself isn't important. I'm just saying being in one ideal posture all the time is not beneficial. And the research is starting to support that. So uh, yeah, I I guess watch the space over the next 10, 15 years. We're probably going to have some changes in our understanding of what posture is, what strength is, what what do we have to do with people to maybe not change their posture, but build other postures, build postures that we can feel comfortable in and strong in. Right. Yeah. Well, that was amazing. That was, yeah. I feel, I feel more knowledgeable. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, I hope that made sense. Yeah, no, for sure. And you know, thanks again for coming on. Um, if anyone, if no one has any other questions, I think we can wrap this up. Let's wrap it up. Uh, we're going to put all, all the links in the bio. We're gonna, I think there's a TED Talk link and there was um, whichever links there are, we will put them in the bio for everyone to watch later. And um, where you can follow Gian on Instagram at the Alpine Physio. Again, going to be in the bio, but he's got some great content on there. Um, and this has been the PT3 podcast. See you next time. Thank you.